0: Uh, Hi, everyone. This is Matt Fox from Free Associations, and I want to welcome you to a a very special bonus episode of the podcast uh, from Boston University School of Public Health, in which we have our first author response segment. So you'll remember back in episode 14, we talked about a study from the New England Journal of Medicine, which was called HIV Prevention Efforts an incidence of HIV in Uganda, and it was led by uh, Dr. Kate Grabowski from Johns Hopkins. And uh, this was a study on the dropping incidence of HIV in Uganda and what it is that might explain it. And after the uh, episode came out, uh, Kate had a chance to listen to the podcast and uh, correct us on a few issues that came up. And that all happened on on Twitter. And we thought it would be a good idea to actually get her onto the podcast so so we could make sure that everyone. Uh, had the record straight on a few issues that we uh, definitely got wrong in the in the podcast version. Uh, so, Kate, welcome to Free Associations, and thanks for agreeing to come on and talk about your study, and and thanks for being our first ever guest.
1: Wow, this is quite an honor. Thanks for having me, Matt. I loved your podcast.
0: Thank you very much. So, so before we uh, get into the details, um, can you can you just give us a bit of background on on you in terms of your training and. How it is that you got into working on uh, HIV incidents in Uganda?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, and, and
0: and we should say both clearly. Both Kate and I are, are work at hospitals, and so you can hear uh, an ambulance in the background there.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very regular occurrence uh, I, I on Monument Street in Baltimore. So, apologies. No problem. Um, yeah. So I so I actually did a study abroad program during my undergraduate degree, and I was in Cape Town in two thousand three. And that's when I first started getting interested in HIV and in epidemiology. And after I finished my undergrad degree, I went to Hopkins for a master's in epidemiology. And I started working on the multi-centered AIDS cohort study and the AIDS linked to intravenous experience study, which are commonly referred to as the max and the alive cohorts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I really started getting interested in in longitudinal studies and HIV research. And so I wanted to get more experience with that after I graduated. So I went uh, and worked for two years uh, with the Rwanda Zambia HIV research group in uh, Rwanda and Zambia uh, on discordant couples cohorts and Discordant
0: couples, meaning meaning one yes. partner is positive and one is negative.
1: One partner is positive and one is negative, negative. and this was uh, just really as ART was being rolled out, we were only treating people in the late stages of infection. So we were still following these couples over time to see who got infected. Now you can't you can't do that because everybody um, who's an who we identify as HIV positive goes right on to therapy. Uh, so so those were the studies I was working on at the time. And uh, I spent two years doing that, and it was awesome. I had a great time, and I became even more interested in doing HIV research. So uh, when I came back to do my PhD at Hopkins in 2009, um, I was looking to work with a group who was uh, doing research in Uganda. And I had been assigned to tutor someone in my PhD cohort uh, who happened to be working with a Ugandan project. And he linked me up with Ron Gray and Maria Waywer, who are the co-founders of the Kai Health Sciences program, and I have been working with them ever since. So and that's how I got started.
0: Fantastic, and I, and I should correct something. I think I said on the on the actual podcast episode that
1: uh,
0: you know that the Rakai program had been going on since the early two thousands, but I think it it may have even been longer than that. Is that do I have that right?
1: Yeah, it's much longer than that. Yeah, the nineties, right? Yeah, so actually, they had uh, done their first population-based zero survey in the Rakai district in nineteen eighty nine. Oh wow! And then, um, and what they found was like really astronomically high HIV prevalence. Thirty percent of the population was infected. It was, it was a public health emergency in their eyes. So they decided to. Uh, see what they could do research in uh, programmatic wise and they the big hot topic at the time was um, STI or control of sexually transmitted infections to reduce HIV infection. Right. So they right. thought if you could yeah, if you could reduce genital ulcers and gonorrhea and syphilis, then maybe you could prevent HIV acquisition. So they started uh, started this community randomized control trial. And that community randomized controlled trial once it ended, those communities continued to be followed, and that's what the Rakai community cohort study is today.
0: Yeah, it's it's really an amazing uh, body of work that that's come out of that that population over the over as you say what almost twenty thirty thirty odd years. Yeah, it's um, a really long time. And I should say I I, I taught a course for almost probably. I don't know 8 years or so that was entirely based on the 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 study that you just described the one on on STIs and and uh increased risk of, of HIV transmission comparing that study to in Rakai to the the Mwanza one in in Tanzania oh, yeah. which looked at the same thing and they found different things and it's just a fascinating case study. Um so so let's uh transition into into your study. So can uh, I my hope is that everyone who's listening to this has listened to episode 14 and, and knows exactly the details of the study, but I'm guessing there might be one or two people out there who haven't. So can you give us the the short version of, of what the study is, why you did it, and uh, what you found?
1: Yeah, so we... Um, We were interested in assessing the population effectiveness of various HIV prevention interventions that have been scaled up largely through the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. And to do that, we used uh, data collected through the Rakai Community Cohort Study. And we focused on uh, communities that were continuously surveyed between 1999 and 2016. So we've surveyed anywhere from like I think like forty five to fifty communities over the years, but these communities um, were continuously surveyed over that uh, period, and data collection um, on key confounders and sexual behavior variables were um, were uniformly collected over that period, uh, and so uh, so in two thousand four was when ARVs became available. And shortly after that, uh, the male circumcision trials had concluded. And PEPFAR was uh, rolling out both ART and medical male circumcision for HIV prevention. Uh, Over this same time period, there was behavioral interventions that were ongoing, uh, including things like condom promotion and couples' voluntary testing and counseling. Um, and a whole host of of other activities. So we wanted to know if these programs that had really uh, began being scaled up in earnest in 2004, if they had had an impact on HIV incidence in our whole population. And so what we wanted to do was to look at what the incidence rates over time were in these 30 continuously surveyed communities between 1999 and 2016. And we also wanted to look and see whether or not the individual level risk of HIV infection had changed as well. And so, uh, so yeah, so basically we assessed HIV incidence prior to 2004, uh, which we consider the baseline period. I think that was really well described in your podcast.
0: And, and it's and just worth noting that the, the prior to 2004 is the period before the large-scale rollout of air to your HIV treatment.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that was our baseline period. So there weren't um, about 15% of the population, male population, were circumcised, and those were predominantly Muslims. Uh, and no one was on ART during that period. It was a really a terrible time. There was uh, a very high mortality. And then in 2004, ART became available, and it was rolled out according to WHO. CD4 initiation criteria. So initially they were only um, providing ART to the sickest people, but then um, uh, as of the more recent rounds, those criteria have changed and more people are now eligible. So a lot more people are on ART. And so these interventions sort of gradually scaled up between 2004 and And 2016. And what we saw were um, a few different things. So we saw. So first we we looked at whether or not sexual behaviors had changed. Uh, And the one thing that we noticed was that very young people between the ages of 15 and 19 delayed sexual. A lot more of them were delaying sexual debut. Um, And that, we think, is probably because of mandatory secondary education that was uh, implemented by the Ugandan uh, government also around 2004. Mm -hmm. Uh, But unfortunately, we didn't see any changes in condom use with non-marital partners. And we really didn't see any reductions in the total number of sexual partners that people were having on an annual basis. Um, So... Beyond the delay in sexual debut in the very young, there wasn't much change in sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, the other major thing that we saw were uh, declines in incidents beginning around 2011 and 2012 um, once we had about 30-40% ART and male circumcision coverage. And so we started to see um, declining HIV incidence with increasing coverage of these interventions. And by 2016, we found that there was a 42% reduction in HIV incidence compared to that baseline period prior to ART and male circumcision availability.
0: A 42% reduction in incidence.
1: Yeah, overall. But one of the key things that we also found was that this was differential by gender. So unfortunately, reductions were not as great in women. Um, And uh, and we think that's probably because uh, men were both benefiting from the direct effects of male circumcision, but also um, higher ART coverage levels in women. So across sub-Saharan Africa, we see that men are... Uh, are less likely to engage in ART care and uh, treatment services. And it's a problem uh, that we're trying to address with a number of interventions right now.
0: And this is, this is something that we see uh, all over Africa, as you say. I mean, every, every report of uh, the demographics from an HIV clinic that I've ever seen, you can reliably predict that it's going to be between 60 and 70% female.
1: Yeah, it's it's really striking how consistent that is across uh, study setting in sub-Saharan Africa. We have a we have a grant on um, that's just finished. It was a qualitative grant where we were doing interviews with men to try to figure out why this was. And the title of that grant was called "The Problem with Men."
0: Yeah, there, 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 <laughs> there. It's an issue. I mean, it's a really big issue, and it's it's it is unfortunate. I mean, I said you know it's it, it's a pattern uh, of care seeking behavior that existed long before HIV came along, but um, it's certainly some uh, an issue we need to deal with. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you, so um, specifically, are you able to tease out whether it's uh, the circumcision or the treatment that is having the bigger effect?
1: Yeah, um, I I don't think we can do that with these data. So we talked a lot about that. Uh, one thing we did do was we looked separately. I mean, we did look separately by circumcised and uncircumcised men, and according to gender to try to tease out um, what the A R T effects were. So presumably, among uncircumcised men, we're seeing the impact of A R T, uh, because it's unlikely we're going to be seeing the indirect effects um, on male partners. This early after circumcision rollout. Mm-hmm. So that was one sort of shallow attempt to do that. Um, and we have, um, you know, we, we have some modeling work that we're considering um, as well as some work uh, looking at partner, um, stable partner networks mm-hmm. to try to tease out some of these uh, effects right now. But I think it's really challenging. Uh, these interventions were scaled up at exactly the same time. Um, and I think, you know, Ah, uh, for a lot of uh, other populations that where this is also occurring, it's also going to be kind of challenging to t- tease out the uh, impact. i do I do think circumcision is a very, very effective intervention that doesn't get any love though. and uh, and you can see in the in the figures and in figure two, I believe in the paper. Ah, uh, that the incidence is really sort of dramatically uh, reduced, particularly among circumcised men. Um they have incidence rates about zero point three per one hundred person years, which is pretty incredible.
0: It's really incredible, um, yeah and and ah uh, so you you just raised the issue of of circumcision being a, a very effective. Uh, intervention. I think you're you're aware that when uh, I tweeted out that, that this episode was coming out, uh, there were people there are people in this world who are very um, critical of the uh, three trials that were originally done on the protective effects of of circumcision for men, protective against mm-hmm. uh, HIV acquisition. Um, they're, as far as I can tell, and I've done extensive reading, their arguments have no, uh, really almost no merit. Um, they have a, a few claims that I think are sort of valid claims, but they don't uh, explain away the massive protective effect. But it, it it um it gets to the issue that i wanted to ask you about this study which is you just said that you found about a 42% reduction in incidents associated with these two interventions mm-hmm. um the the original circumcision trials found about a 50% 50 to 60% reduction associated with circumcision alone so i suppose the first question is do you think there's a reason why the 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 trials found a, a 50% reduction with with only circumcision, whereas here you've got both interventions and you're finding less of a uh, a reduction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember this is the real world. So and yep. um, and these RCTs were people don't choose to get circumcised. They're already they're either in the intervention or the control arm. And when they sign up for the study. They say, I agree to be in the intervention or the control arm. Um, But in reality, uh, there's self-selection into circumcision services. So uh, what we've seen actually in Rakai is that the very, and this is in the supplement too, if you're interested, uh, for those that are interested, but um, it's really the very young that are getting circumcised right now, and we have some gaps in the older age groups and circumcision coverage. So it's non-uniform in the population. Uh, and because of this, we think that might have attenuated the population level impact in Rakai.
0: Yeah, and, and and I suppose I would say, I mean, I think the the part of the the real difference is that in in the trial you're looking at the benefits to the individual, where as yeah. here you're looking at a larger, more population level effect. And as you say, not, not everyone's getting circumcised, whereas in the trial it's you know you're comparing those who were to those who weren't. Um, and so um, then I mean, then I wanted Matt, to. Get- Yep.
1: I just I just wanted to say we did actually report on the individual level um, True, effect that, of male right. circumcision in the study, and it was about um, it was a forty percent reduction, so it was slightly lower um, than what we saw in the trials.
0: Which which of course is what you you'd expect, as you say, yeah. in, under real world conditions with some probably some residual confounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the the and the second issue that I wanted to raise was you, uh, the people who are critical of the original circumcision trials. We want to make the point that this 42 or in, in the case of the trial, 60% reduction is something that we really emphasize when in fact we're talking about uh, a small absolute reduction that the, the incidence of HIV, the yearly incidence is a, uh, you know, what about one, what is it about 1.5% uh, there?
1: Um, well, now it's down to about, I think, what was the final estimate in our paper, like 0.7 or 0.8? nine per 100 person years, and it's much lower in men. I mean, this is what we're reporting on the New England Journal of Medicine paper. It's not just an individual level risk reduction. The overall HIV incidence, particularly among um, uh, circumcised and particularly among men overall, has gone down. Um, it's For men, the incidence has declined by almost 50 percent. So that is, I mean, I actually responded to this um, for a Politifact podcast. The same argument, <laughs> yep. um, and and no, we do actually see large reductions in the number of cases because of this.
0: Right, and I, you know, yeah. I think the the issue here is, and I'm I'm a very very strong believer in the idea that we need to report both relative and absolute differences, mm-hmm. uh, but. I, I think the point that gets missed here is that a you know a, if you have a fifty percent reduction off of a, a base of you know uh, let's say one point five percent per year roughly mm-hmm. I mean that's a rough translation um, you know that can seem like a small number you know fifty percent reduction then gets you from one point or let's say one point two to 0. 0.6 or whatever it is mm-hmm. um, percent but but we're talking about per year and so yeah. when you start to multiply that out and then you start to think about for each person who's not getting infected they are not then transmitting to four or five yes. other people the knock-on effects are huge and so the idea that you would dismiss a a 50 percent reduction in incidence because it's it's a small absolute difference on a yearly basis is absurd and I, I just I find the I find the argument so frustrating that I just wanted to 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 clarify yeah. that it's really important.
1: I'm not sure if you've covered this on your podcast, but I think talking about absolute and relative risk differences, I just people confuse um, people confuse that all the time. Uh, so I think I think to some extent what they're arguing is that if not a lot of people in your population are circumcised, then it's not. Circumcision really isn't going to make that big of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, sixty percent of our population is circumcised, and so we have high coverage of the intervention. And because we have high coverage of the intervention, we do see these reductions in incidents. And one point, an incidence of one point five per one hundred person years, um, is is huge. it, um, it is huge. It's a lo- <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's huge, uh, and that's why we have such a big epidemic in Africa. Um, the prevalence in our communities is 14% of 15 to 49-year-olds. And so uh, I think what's really awesome right now is we're starting to see reductions in male HIV prevalence, even despite the fact that we have ART. So ART increases survival, so you would expect to see higher prevalence once you roll out uh, ART. And right now we're starting to see reductions of HIV incidence, even with rollout of ART that the increased survival. So that's super for us, that's super exciting. Uh, But yeah, I find the, I find that argument to be, to be really frustrating.
0: And I, and I, well, and let me, let me, let me just sort of emphasize it once more as you, I want to repeat what you said, which is 1.5%, you know, per year is, is huge. That's a huge instance because if you, you know, think about that over a 10 year period, you're talking about you know 10 to 15 percent of your population being infected, and if we can cut that in half, we go from 14 to seven. Um, now that's going to take a long time because incidence and prevalence are two different things, and people with HIV thankfully are living, so prevalence isn't isn't actually dropping as quickly. But um, that kind of a cut in in HIV incidence is massive.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic intervention. I'm sure I'll get a lot of angry emails.
0: Well, I'm sure I will as well, but, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to get those. I'm happy to get yeah. those. Cause this is, this is important stuff. Um, yeah. okay. So let's get into the, into the issue that, that I very clearly got wrong. And, uh, uh, the issue of whether or not your study was ecologic, which I should say right up front, um, you say in the paper, this is a cohort study, not yeah. an ecologic study. Um, And my my confusion on this sort of came about because while it certainly is a cohort study, and I think I did at least note that you were dealing with individual level data, Mm -hmm. um, while this is a cohort study, you are dealing with a population level variable that you're trying to relate to individual level incidents, that population level variable being the coverage of circumcision or the coverage of of ART HIV treatment. Um, So can you explain... Why this is not an ecologic study where we correlate two population level variables, but it's actually in which case it becomes difficult to actually assess causation to why this is a a cohort study in which you can. Uh,
1: Yeah, well, so we were following individuals over time in the study. So typically for ecological studies, you have both um, uh, exposures measured at the aggregate uh, or population level, and outcomes measured at the aggregate or population level. So you don't really know within individuals whether or not uh, particular exposures are reducing or increasing risk for some outcome. You can't, you can't say that with confidence. You can only correlate these two uh, measures to, together. And that's typically what I think of as an ecological study. But here, um, the Rakai Community Cohort Study follows people individuals over time. And what we were doing was looking at individual level risk over time. So one per- a person would come in, we would interview them, they'd come back, um, and we'd interview and test them for HIV again, and we would see if their status changed. Um, and because we had that data on the individual level, um, uh, it's not, it's not a, an ecological study so and, i I disagreed with that point
0: and you and and yeah. you're hundred percent right and i i yeah. I did try to put it into the um the introduction when i when I realized I'd gotten that wrong, but uh it 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 obviously is not as good as hearing you actually explain why I got it wrong um,
1: <laughs> Matt, you aren't alone. the reviewers on the paper also said the same thing
0: oh did so they did they, they did. and yeah. you, and you pushed back and
1: and we rebutted them yes <laughs> yeah i
0: mean it's 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 um it's. I think it's a little bit difficult for the the average person, which I would put myself in, uh, to to sort of um, wrap your head around the the distinctions that we're typically taught around study designs. Yeah. When you are trying to relate a population level variable on a causal individual level basis, so you know if I'm exposed to uh, fewer people who are infected, does that you know, equate to less risk to me. Um, you know, it's not something that I, it's not looking at whether or not I'm circumcised specifically, so much as whether or not the population is circumcised. Yeah. And I think that's just a little bit uh, harder for people to wrap their their heads around.
1: No, it's definitely a challenging concept. And, um, and we were really careful to sort of explain what our rationale was, at least in the response to the reviewers. But Yeah. I think, I mean, even ourselves, when we were talking about this and what the study design was, we're like, yeah, no, it's a cohort study. It's definitely a cohort (laughs) study. So, so I'm with you. Um, I think it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Okay. Maybe We could have laid that out better. I think maybe in the manuscript, but
0: no, I mean, fair enough. I think we could always do a better job, but you, you do specifically say it's a cohort study. So I, uh, Mm -hmm. I think that this one's on me. Um, so the other issue that, that we were we were sort of chatting about over Twitter was you said um, you think we put a little bit too much of an emphasis on this point one number. So the point one number that we talked about in the podcast was uh, the idea that you know you you're in in the Rakai community incidents dropped to 0.6 per one hundred person years. Uh, estimates suggest that we probably have to get it to point one per. One hundred person years. I think I got that right. Point one per hundred person years to get HIV incidence to drop to the point where we could theoretically end transmission. And you said you thought we may we make a little too much of that point one number. Can you say a little bit about why?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a nice goal. It's something we can measure, but um, but incidence is not the same as the reproductive number right so um, when we're so, really, so can you
0: explain what that is for the listener so, who doesn't so the reproductive
1: know? number is the average number of um, individuals uh, someone will infect um, in a completely susceptible population that's the basic reproductive number and then the effective reproductive number um, is 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 the same quantity but in a population with some um,, uh, where people have already been infected or there's it's not a completely susceptible population anymore. And so when that number is above one, we have an uh, an epidemic. and when it's below one, we can control the epidemic and the epidemics on the decline, and we'll start to see a reduction in new cases. And so that quantity depends on a lot of different things. It depends on, um, it depends on the underlying contact network, it depends on how long people are living, it depends on, uh the individual level probability of um uh transmission uh within couples. And uh and so we've been able to reduce the probability of transmission with things like A or T and with male circumcision. Uh but I don't think we really know um I don't think I, I personally don't think we know what the reproductive number is right now. And I don't necessarily think the reproductive number um, of one correlates with zero point one per one hundred person year. So I think we need to do a little bit more modeling to tease that out a little
0: bit. I better. think I, I, yeah. I think you're right about that. So I should I, I, would, I would sort of add to what you said there that the 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 intuition for why you want that number to be below one is that you can just sort of think of it as essentially a replacement. That if if yeah. everybody is on average infecting uh, fewer than one person then the number of new cases uh, is less than the number of people who eventually would uh, leave the population, either in the case of a treatable infection through through cure or treatment or whatever it is, or through death, if, if it's something that you end up with lifelong, like HIV, uh, and therefore eventually you would, you would be able to control the epidemic. And I, I I think you're right. I mean, I think the modeling on this is still questionable. I think we really don't uh, in addition to what you said, which is I think we don't know what the reproductive number is exactly, I think we also don't really understand as well as we need to the dynamics of transmission. By which I mean, how much uh, of that? Is, let's say the reproductive number is five. Let's say on average, you know, the 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 person who comes into a completely susceptible population is passing on the infection to five new people. Well, yeah. how many of those five new people are happening? During the period right after infection and how many of that is happening over the decades that that person is going to live, if if much of that infection is occurring, you know, before the person ever knows they're infected, it's very hard to prevent those new infections through things like treatment uh, and pre-exposure prophylaxis. Well, I suppose pre- that that ignore the second one but the first one because you just don't you know you're not on treatment during the time when you're passing on the infection so i I agree with you that i think the we're not clear yet on what the actual number is that we need to get to
1: i also i also don't think we really understand a lot about the contact structure itself um so we don't know like you know how you know so, so the, the ways in which people uh, form partnerships uh, can have a huge impact on the reproductive number, um, and we don't really have, um, have any idea of what that underlying network structure is. Uh, I, th- I would, I would agree with you there. Yeah, yep.
0: yeah absolutely. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I I agree that that acute early infection um uh, point that you just brought up is a huge debate it <laughs> within is. the field and uh, and hopefully there'll be some more research on that moving forward. But but yeah, I wonder if that's why, despite um, scaling up and achieving ninety ninety, why we haven't really reached um uh, you know we haven't really been able to reduce infection much below this this forty percent. I suspect so, it's yeah. it's
0: it's certainly a part of it. Yeah. Um. Okay, so the, and the, other, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was you commented on, I, and I think if I remember correctly, you said you agreed that, um, in, that, that the out-migration from the Rakai population is, is, is an issue in terms of trying to draw inferences from the, from the data that you're working with. Can you say a little bit more about what you know, how much migration there is in the Rakai population and what the challenges are there?
1: Yeah, so there's so I just want to start by saying that Rakai is an open cohort, so yep. people can leave the study and they can enter the study. So we actually capture migrants coming into our communities, um, but there are people who are leaving, and we see about twenty five percent of our study population turning over um, between surveys, uh, which is which is huge. We have um, some studies that are under review describing this uh, phenomenon in a lot more detail. Uh, but yeah, people are, people are moving all the time and, um, uh, and it's, I mean, this mobility is, I think is a huge issue. Um, it's, it makes, it makes it more challenging to interpret things, I think, but because we are capturing, uh, migrants in our study population, I, I, I feel somewhat confident we're capturing some of that elevated risk that I believe is associated with mobility, So I will tell your listeners to stay tuned because we do have a study coming out in Lancet HIV um, in the near future um, uh, that's describing what's happening with migrants coming into our study population. Uh, But yeah, I think the people who don't participate in studies, we always have to make that assumption that they're the same as the ones who do. And, you know, that makes me that always keeps me up at night and makes me nervous. So, absolutely, absolutely,
0: yeah. and I and I think you know, looking at the the migration data in in your paper, um, you know, I think it's it's worth making two points. One is I I think it's fair when you see out migration and in migration like that um, to have a little bit of, of of skepticism. On the other hand, it is it is also worth noting that the the these are the realities of working in on population level uh, you know, field sites like this, um, people do move and we have to, we have to deal with it. And these numbers are, uh, not in any way inconsistent with what you would expect. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fair to, to have a little bit of, of, um, concern when you see it, but I also think it it is, you know, the, the best that we can do. We can't force people to stay where they are and we can't trace people when they move necessarily. And, so. you know, I think I, it's I just, I think it's just the realities of, of what we do or what yeah. you do. I don't do this.
1: <laughs> In my dream, somebody gives me millions of dollars to go track down some of these people and see what happens to them. But NIH, if you're listening, no, I'm, kidding. Uh, I'm sure um, they
0: are. And I'm sure they're,
1: <laughs> they're writing up uh, a, a
0: notice of award for you right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think I mean this is the this is a huge challenge with these types of large studies. And I think the same will go with uh some of the randomized controlled trials that are going on looking at these same things.
0: Agreed. Yep. Yeah. Um and so the last thing I want to ask you about is so something that you started with. So you 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 have this um behavioral data that you also looked at. Uh and you said really not a lot uh, of change over time, except in one indicator, which is this delay in in sexual debut. And I, I, two questions really. The first is why, why, why can we not, you know, make any real major dents in terms of behavior change? And then the second question is uh, how much should we believe the 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 change in, in delay in in sexual debut, given that people presumably know what the right answer is, or as, you know, as these messages have come in over time, you know, how much should we be a little skeptical of that? And I, and I preface this with, it doesn't change the interpretation of your study because your study doesn't, your study is focused on these other two factors, but I'm just, I'm just curious your, your take on that.
1: So I I I'm pretty confident in the delay in sexual debut question, and I'm confident because we don't see. I think we saw one case, um, in that group over the entire, um, over the entire like seventeen year
0: period. M- meaning one, one one new infection one, among one people who HIV said. One new HIV infection. Yeah. Among people yeah. who said that they had not yet had sex. Exactly. Oh. So
1: it's it's very very low. So that's one way you could assess. Um, you could assess whether or not. That's an accurate measure. Agreed. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's in the supplement. There's lots of stuff in the supplement. Um,
0: I did read the supplement, but I, I some of the supplement goes in one ear and out the other. You're the only other.
1: person that read the supplement. <laughs> I,
0: I I would like to say my two co-hosts did, but I, I can't vouch okay. for them.
1: <laughs> um. Everybody, I should tell your listeners to always check out the supplements because there's great information and, and supplemental materials.
0: But but, uh, but back to this question. So wh- yeah. uh, why? why and, and I know obviously this is not your study's question, but I'm just curious if you have thoughts on why it has been such a struggle to uh, implement successful behavior change interventions.
1: I have, honestly, I have no idea. Yeah. It's just, I mean, people just do not want to use condoms. I don't know what it is. Maybe they're not comfortable. I mean, I don't know. Do we see huge... I I mean, I don't know how much that differs in the United States. I don't think it differs.
0: No, I don't think it differs much. Um, I think this is the 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 struggle, and this is you know, I think this is part of why um, male circumcision, HIV treatment, pre exposure prophylaxis, um, all of these biomedical uh, prevention methods are so important is because you know there is a you know, behavior change would be great. Condoms are effective, but it has been so hard to get them to people to change their behavior. And I think we have to accept that that is something about human nature. uh, And, you know, we have to look for other ways.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think we should still, I mean, there are still people who use them. And if you do look at the, the um, effects among those who are using them, it's still, it is somewhat effective. So I think you know we can continue to provide them, but whether or not we want to dump all our money into some of these campaigns, I'm not. I'm not totally sure. Uh, Martina Morris has done some really nice work showing that you don't have to change behaviors that much mm-hmm. to make a huge difference um, on epidemic dynamics. Um, so that's also something to keep in mind. So maybe if we can only get like you know if we can get ten percent or twelve percent more people to use condoms um, or to reduce their number of sexual partners, we could we could potentially have. Uh, large impact on the epidemic. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I would urge you to check out some of her stuff. Uh, it's, it's compelling. Uh, but yeah, it's been, I mean, it's just been a struggle for years to get people to change behavior. Yep.
0: And it just, it just seems a nearly intractable problem. Maybe it's not, but that is my, my skepticism.
1: Yeah. Mine, mine too.
0: Okay. So I, and I want to get to, to one last issue, uh, specifically about the paper and it is the, Mm -hmm. uh, the issue that I I noted about the language in your paper, which is that <laughs> I made the comment that you used the word probably, uh, I think, 13 times. 13 or times? Like times? Uh, we'll what did cry. I say? For me, it was 11, 12, somewhere in that neighborhood. And it was it was more than – I went back and looked more than all the times – it had been used in all of the papers we had previously reviewed. and mm-hmm. i i I brought this up on the podcast, And when I went back and listened, I didn't emphasize enough that the my reason for bringing this up is I thought this was a strength of your study, which wow. is that I think Thanks. that we I think that we as um, researchers are often either too enamored with our own results or we just feel like we're supposed to um approach our own results uh, uh, to 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 put a lot of um belief in our own results because you know others may be critical or uh we believe it's not going to get accepted in a journal if we are um you know expressing some some uh, I don't know what the word is, but it, you know the 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 that we are not a hundred percent sure that we know exactly what's going on. But this is what we believe, and this is the best evidence. So to me, I thought this was a real strength of your study that you were willing to say, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but here's what we think. You know, don't take this as as uh, fact. And much of this was around your interpretation of the data, not around the the actual effects itself. But I think this is you know I think this is something that we should be doing, and I wanted to get your your take when you read uh other people's work and you see you know um uh you get to the limitation section and, and it's sort of a um uh, a list of things that we think maybe didn't go quite right, but we can explain to you why you shouldn't really care about those things anyway um mm. do you do you have more or less confidence after reading those things?
1: Hmm. After the limitations paragraph?
0: Yeah. I, I I'll, Let me just say that I often have less confidence after reading the limitations because I often feel like, you know, there are things that are pretty obvious that aren't in there. Uh, and I wonder why didn't we talk about those things? Um, you know, why are we trying so hard to explain it all away as opposed to just saying these are, you know, these are when we do observational epidemiology or even trials, there are... Limitations and and we should we should, I think, embrace them, not run away from them.
1: You think there should be more of a discussion? Yeah, I agree. I feel like it's sort of this afterthought at the end of the paper, um, when really I think it should help inform the discussion a little bit more holistically, right? And um, I think thinking about the limitations is kind of like the best part of reviewing papers, right? Absolutely. Really thinking about like what you're going to do next or how you can improve this or um where you know where we should be focusing our energies moving forward and you know for instance like the mobility issue people will always put that as like an afterthought limitation yeah there's a lot of mobility but like i'm obsessed with mobility now like i feel like i have to know, know everything about it and what's uh, what's what's happening and how it might be impacting interventions and stuff and you know i think to some extent um uh like how much we can sort of pontificate about our results is limited by the journal like we don't have a ton of space to write what we always want to but you know I do think um in general we can be a little bit more um more humble about our results and and feel free to discuss limitations a little bit more without necessarily um I wish we could do that more without the fear of rejection from some of these journals but I think yeah I think that's going to be a hard thing to overcome
0: it's an interesting it's an interesting point because as you say I mean there are space limitations and you know we all uh, who who have gone through this process know the the issue that you get to where you you uh, have a word limitation of say 3500 words you are at 3499 when you submitted it then <laughs> yeah. then you get the comments back and they say I want you to add this and this and this <laughs> and then the journal says you have to respond to all of these things and you also have to stay within the word limit um yeah. you know it's it's a challenge i think you could i think you could potentially make an argument that maybe it isn't actually the author's job to point out the limitations it's the research communities you know and the, and the consumers of this to point out the limitations but then if you're going to do that then i think you need a formal process to actually make sure that every paper gets a you know a a thorough uh, discussion of the limitations by somebody outside so i don't i don't know what the answer is but i mean i think do you think
1: there, there should be? be a com- Do you think there should be a comment section at the end of
0: articles? You know, I don't know about that. I mean, based on my experiences, I'm I'm reasonably new to to Twitter, um, mm-hmm. but my experiences with Twitter is that comment sections on things uh, <laughs> are places for people to say nasty things, and um, as Don calls it, the bicker sphere. I don't know that a comment section on a on a, a journal article would necessarily be the same, but it, it does seem to be comment sections in general aren't the place for a uh, really rigorous debate. I do wonder about the idea of what if, um, you know, if peer review were, were an open process as it is in a few journals, but not many where yeah. the, the peer reviewed comments were published alongside with the, the, the paper. And so people could actually read the, the critiques. I, I don't know.
1: I think that would be great. I mean, eLife does that. Um, I found it very, I found them very informative. Uh, so there are journals that are starting to do that. I think it's nice, um, and I'd l- I would like to see more of that, because then you can see how the paper evolved. Um, I do think making the peer review process completely open could be, I mean, just from, you know, I'm a younger scientist, and I'm kind of just starting out, uh, and, it, you know, especially if you were reviewing somebody's paper who was much more senior than you in the field, like, I think that could be uh, that could be kind of daunting to put your opinion out there. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe okay. So
0: so yeah. for the for the the listener who's not really familiar with this process, what the peer review process says: you submit your paper, it gets sent out to some experts in the field who are charged with, um, uh, critiquing your paper and uh, advising the journal on whether or not it is uh accepted or rejected or uh there are things that you need to address before it's ready for. Uh, publication. And uh, this process is typically, although journals do it differently, typically anonymized. So in some cases, the person doing the peer review doesn't know who wrote the article. Um, that's sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. But it is very common that the the authors of the article don't, they get the comments back from the peer review, but they don't know who they came from. Mm-hmm. But some journals now are asking you to put your name on your peer review. Uh, have you have you reviewed for any journals where they require you to put your name on it?
1: Um, I not where they require me to do it. I I usually say no because I'm I'm generally concerned about you know about what the repercussions would be. Maybe I should start saying yes. Do you say yes, Matt?
0: I do say yes. Um, uh, I do okay. say yes, but um, I hate saying yes. I say it because I feel <laughs> like I feel like it's the right thing to do but i am always um i am concerned i mean as you say i'm concerned about the the potential repercussions i'm concerned about the um you know that somebody is going to uh misinterpret partly probably because i haven't said it well yeah. uh what it is that i'm trying to say or the motives behind why i'm i'm saying it um and i i do I, I, every time I click the box, I am, I am, uh, I sleep a little bit less well that night, uh, knowing that I just, <laughs> I just clicked that box. Um, I, I think in general though, I would say I'd like to see more experiments and creativity around the peer review process. I'd like to see people trying, you know, journals, trying new things around how we improve this process. Cause I think is. It is a flawed system. We know that, but I think you know it could be made better. And I think we've got to try new ways to try and make it better. I don't. I don't have the answers as to what they are, but you know, I, I think we can do better. Yeah,
1: maybe we need some RCTs. For, I think. I mean, for journal review, it
0: strikes me as absurd that we're not doing trials uh, of things like this because. Um, you know, this is what we, as a field um argue is you know, the gold standard for trying to figure out cause and effect. And if we the the if we're not actually willing to do it with uh, approaches to peer review, then I, I I think we're we're sending a big message now, its would be complicated because how do you measure whether or not it's working and what the benefits are? But I still think we could we could think about that. I should say I also never understood why. We who teach epidemiology as I do mm-hmm. and uh, don't actually do uh, any trials of randomized trials of experimental teaching methods to you know what are the best ways to teach our students um, we we profess that this is the way to figure out what works, and yet we don't actually use it in our teaching methods. So that one's always bugged me as well.
1: It's a lot of trial by error, I think,
0: yeah, definitely <laughs> is and 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 subjective opinions on when something works. But anyway, I'm a little off topic here. (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) back to you, back to you and your study. So I want to just end with a couple of things. So, um, um, you're, are you familiar with the, um, I hate when people ask me about acronyms, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, the, the ANRS 12249 trial, which was the, the test and treat trial, that was done in, in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa? I am. Okay. I am familiar with that. Were you, were you involved at all? Nope. nope. Okay. So, so for the listeners, this was a, a trial of this concept of test and treat, which is a, a big thing in the HIV field right now, where we go out into communities and we try and test people as often as we can for HIV. And if they test positive, we try to put them onto treatment as quickly as we can. Because, again, under this theory that if we get people onto treatment – we reduce their viral load, they become less and less likely to transmit uh, the virus to others. And um, the models show that this will work if we can actually do it in practice. The trial sh- didn't show uh, really a benefit. And I'm curious, in light of your um, findings, if you have any insight as to why you think the the test and treat study, where it was a a, a proposed intervention, didn't have much of a benefit, whereas you know just sort of looking at what was going on in the population in Uganda seemed to really have a benefit
1: yeah i i wonder if it's more of an issue of study design i mean if you look at the ARNS study the um, the intervention and the control the co- they they didn't differ in terms of coverage of art uh, so comparing them becomes challenging if they have the same level of expo- of of exposure right um, so I think that was the biggest, I mean, I think that's the biggest reason they didn't see anything. Uh, but you know, also like I wonder just more broadly, like, um, you know, with a lot of these models, um, the initial models, uh, that were done looking at the impact of test and treat, I think the most famous one is by Ruben Granage. It was published in the Lancet. Yep. I think it's the Lancet. Yeah. Back in 2009. Yep. Um, and that's a very simple model that assumed uh, you know that there wasn't any sort of differential uptake of treatment in the population and um, and everybody everybody was at equal likelihood of, of going on to art and almost everybody eventually did uh, and you know we know that's not the case like so for instance you know in south africa just as in the same in uganda we we see that men are less likely to be on care and uh, and we have some Some other data suggesting that people with higher risk sexual behaviors are also less likely to get onto ART treatment and enrolled into these care programs. And so I think there were some initial assumptions, um, you know, that may have impacted uh, what we would have expected uh, to see. But I think the biggest issue with, uh, with that particular trial is that there was no differential coverage in ART between the treatment and control arm. I don't
0: know if you would agree with that, but that I, I, I would. Happen. I would. I would. I think there's one other issue that I think is going on, but but to that point specifically, I mean, I think that the um, this is part of of why um, you'll often hear on this podcast, Chris uh, will often um, be critical of observational studies and uh, seems to be um, seems to really love randomized trials. I love randomized trials too, but I think the what. The differences between your study and their study illustrate, or one of the things that it illustrates is we really need observational data because you can't look at the effects of these population interventions in trial format now in exactly the same way you could have 10 years ago for exactly the reason you said, which is that people are now have access to treatment. We are now supposed to treat everybody who we come into contact with who has HIV, and therefore it would be unethical to not offer treatment to anybody who, who, uh, came forward. And so trying to understand the impacts of these interventions, you really need historical longitudinal observational data. And that's, I think what, what your study shows that, that, you know, a trial at this point couldn't.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm a little worried about some of the results that are coming out maybe, you know, or that are supposed to be coming out in the next couple of years. I hope they find something, um, you know, because the danger, I think, is if they don't, like, I'm afraid that might be fodder for, you know, folks to say, oh, yeah, these interventions aren't working. We shouldn't be investing money in them. But really, it's just sort of this study design issue. I, so that's my, that's my fear with some I of I agree stuff. with you. I, th-
0: yeah. I think the other issue in that study, of course, is was was their uh, rates of, of linkage to care, which is something that we focus a lot on, is if you go into the community and you test somebody – um, you then got to get them to a health facility to get them on treatment. Oh,
1: yeah, they were poor.
0: And the the rates of linkage were low. And this is something that we've been shouting about for, for years now um, is that you, you, your models can show that incidence is going to drop if you get anyone onto treatment. But getting people onto treatment is not an easy thing to do. It's just not.
1: So are you a proponent of same-day uh, initiation of treatment? Mom?
0: Very much. Okay. Very much. Yeah. Um, I, it comes with some risks. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it certainly is possible that if we put people onto treatment the day that they test positive, that really what we're going to do is shift loss to follow up to after treatment initiation, which has some potential dangers around resistance. But I just think the you know we we did a trial of same day initiation in in South Africa that that clearly showed mm-hmm. benefits in terms of both initiation rates, which you'd expect, but also in terms of um, you know uh, I think it was eight month uh, viral suppression rates. That show that getting people onto treatment faster has benefits in terms of just getting people suppressed. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely am. How about you?
1: Yeah, I I totally am. I think that the data from your uh, studies and from others have been super promising. So we're trying to we're trying to do some of that work in Rakai now, but it's it's difficult to implement. Um, uh, sometimes when there aren't the funds available so (laughs) um but yeah i think we need to be moving in that direction for sure and i think we are um and we'll get there but um but yeah i think it's a great thing
0: fantastic well kate thank you so much for for coming on the show and uh and chatting with you i really enjoyed it
1: thanks for having me i think your podcast is great it's where we can discuss the limitations of all of our our papers i hope so i hope so
0: I yeah. hope so. Thank you so much. So, I just wanted to uh, remind the listeners that if you got any feedback on this or any of our other episodes, or you want to suggest a topic for us to talk about, you can tweet us at, at pophealthyx. That's at pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at profmattfox. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. Uh, as always, I want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us for this very special episode of Free Associations and our first ever guest on the podcast. Uh, And if you think we should do more of these, tweet to us and let us know.